Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, I'm really glad to have Libby Emmons back on the program uh, to end her very uh, interesting perspective on all things that have happened in the last few weeks here. Um, starting with, oh, well, I should probably say she's with the Post Millennial. That's she's in charge of the Post Millennial. Um, so definitely on the front lines of covering a lot of the the news that we've uh, been seeing. Uh, especially for me, my Twitter feed, I see post-millennial articles all the time. So um, definitely getting getting out there. Um, Libby, we were talking about before, just before I went, we went uh, live with this. We're talking about how, how we find the primaries boring. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, we still, I feel like to release um, this high noon episode, which will be Wednesday, uh, without discussing Iowa at all would be a disservice. So we must discuss the primaries for the last that. time. <laughs> so uh, in Iowa, we got a huge win, very commanding lead by Donald Trump. Uh, neither DeSantis, who came in second, nor Haley, who came in a close third behind DeSantis, uh, got anywhere close to Donald Trump. Um, so... I guess a couple questions. One, what's your read on what happened there? Is is the primary over at this point effectively, or is there still a path for one of these guys, even of the slimmest of margins? And two, um, why why do you think that Donald Trump has such an obvious and commanding lead in the Republican Party? Because it seems like a lot of people don't want him to have that. Yeah, so a really interesting thing I think happened over the past year, which is the, the American public went out there and they said pretty definitively in several polls that they did not want to see a Joe Biden, Donald Trump rematch. They wanted some new options. They wanted something fresh. And so what do we get? We get we get a Biden Trump rematch that pretty much nobody nobody wanted at all. So many people in the Democratic Party don't want that. You know, a lot of people on the Republican side, as we've seen from the support uh, garnered by Haley DeSantis and Ramaswamy, as well as there was Christy for a hot second. Uh, we see that like people definitely want other options. Um, that being said, Trump does have a huge amount of support. I think that a lot of what gives him so much support is that the things that he ran on in 2016 are issues again, right? We see a lot of people very concerned about the situation at the border, concerned about illegal immigration, which has drastically, drastically ramped up under the Biden administration. Biden administration keeps talking about how the border is not open and there's no crisis. And then as, as soon as Texas tries to say, you know what, we're going to secure the border, you guys. It's OK. We're going to build some walls. We're going to put up some fences. We're going to put in some National Guard. We're going to get this taken care of. Biden goes, they go to the court, they go to the courts and they say, this is totally illegal. It's unconstitutional. They need to just keep the border open. But there's no crisis and the border is closed. So everything they're doing keeps the border wide open creates problems with illegal immigration, creates problems not just for the border, border states at this point, but our beloved New York City uh, is facing serious budget problems because of this, as well as other issues. So I think that that's a big part of it. A lot of those early concerns that launched him into the White House in the first place are still concerns. Um, and that's something that I think we're definitely hearing from voters we also see that the more the Biden administration goes at Trump, the more that 
Democrat DAs like Alvin Bragg and Fannie Willis go out there and run campaigns on the fact that they're going to get Trump. I mean, it's like so transparent. And then they go out there and they go after Trump. Letitia James as well, New York's attorney general, same thing. So I think that I think that a lot of what he says resonates with people. Hey, the government is trying to get me. And then you look and it's like, oh, the government is kind of trying to get you. Look at that. Um, I think that resonates with people. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because if you look at when DeSantis's polls just started their complete collapse, um, long train downwards, because at one point, the polls in Iowa, when DeSantis entered the race, right, and especially before he entered the race, actually, <laughs> the polls in Iowa were about 50-50. And, and the polls overall among Republicans showed that Republicans were quite open to the DeSantis candidacy. And my read on the situation, which may or may not be true, but from what I observed, I think once the, the lawfare ramped up against Trump, that's when it became sort of Trump or bust for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard a lot of analysis around like, oh, DeSantis should have attacked Trump more. He should have attacked Trump less. I I actually don't know. I think like splitting the Republican Party up into people who are pro-Trump versus people who are open to any alternative to Trump, um, that doesn't reflect the reality when I talk to people. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, of course, that's like an anecdotal way of of dealing with it. But I think the initial polls really kind of do show, did show that, that there were a lot of people who were, they liked Trump. They were open to DeSantis as an alternative. They might've been open to, you know, Vivek or somebody else as an alternative. They weren't Trump's, you know, 30% core Trump only, always Trump base. But the second that this became about making sure that the American voter could not and would not have the option to vote for Trump um, in all of these ways that I think are dangerous and illegitimate. Me too. Uh, <laughs> but but I think that really like cemented Trump because those early polls, he did not have this kind of lead. like, yeah, he was the presumptive front runner as the former nominee. Um, but I, I don't think it was sort of uh, locked in, at least from those early polls, the way that it really feels locked in now. Like I, I yeah. have a hard time seeing any of these guys, like the point to any of their campaigns going forward. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that there is a lot of point to these campaigns. You even had Nikki Haley saying today uh, that there would there should be no more debates if Trump isn't on the stage. And you had DeSantis, I think, saying something ridiculous that he would debate two empty podiums. So that was that's kind of weird. Um, but yeah, I don't see a way forward there either. It, Tucker Carlson actually had said when they were trying to pull Trump off the ballot that that secured for him that he would vote for Donald Trump. And I think that there's something to that just as an American ethos. As soon as you tell us we can't do something, we are damn well going to do it, whatever it is that you're telling us we can't do. So I think that that I, I do think that you're right that that is a big part of it. But also, I think that DeSantis now I really think DeSantis is an amazing governor. I think he's done a great job, you know, certainly some of the legislation on gender that he's managed to get through and education. I am a big proponent of those things, despite the ACLU coming down so hard and like PFLAG and whoever else coming down hard on Florida. Um, I was excited about his candidacy. I was concerned when he took so long to launch it. We all knew he was going to run. He was traveling around the country. He said it was a book tour. And you're like, really? It doesn't look like a book tour. It looks like a presidential campaign. What are you doing? You wrote the book. Now you're on the tour. Like, just say it. Just say you're running. 
Uh, it took a very long time for him to announce months and months after everyone knew that he was definitely going to run um, right down to the efforts that were done to change the law in Florida so that someone who is a sitting elected official doesn't have to resign before they run for another office, right? And that came through, what was it, like in the in the spring last year that came through. And then he launched his campaign in a disastrous Twitter spaces that was just, it was just so flat. It was more like an advertisement for Elon Musk's Twitter than it was a launch of a presidential campaign. And I thought that was a really big mistake. And then you have, you know, and again, this is, you know, online specific and Twitter isn't necessarily the real world, but it is to a certain extent. Then you have, as soon as, um, you know, if anyone criticizes DeSantis online, he, you have this army of influencers that come after you and start criticizing you and like digging into your life to say that you're a big problem. So I think that DeSantis is a good leader. I think he is, um, you know, I hope he gets another shot to run for president, frankly, and I hope he gets a completely different campaign team. Yeah, I mean, look, um, I agree that I think the, the DeSantis campaign wasn't well run. I, I tend to think once Trump got attacked the way that he did um trump's trump's core argument and the one that i think appeals this in the strongest way beyond his let's call it what it is his fan base right and uh, that's what he calls them the fans right um which i've never it's always rubbed me the wrong way i you I know like I, I, I i'm a citizen I'm, I'm not somebody's <laughs> fan um and ultimately, like the president works for us. I know all of this is mm -hmm. is very naive and and uh, you know outdated you by a hundred years or whatever, but it still does rub me the wrong way. Um, that being said, I mean the, the stuff about the online stuff. I don't think that matters at all. I don't. So depending on which side of this fight you were on online, there was just egregious behavior from both sides. I mean, sure. I've had friends their information docs. I mean, obviously there were a lot of Trump surrogates who have behaved abominably the kind of things they were willing to say about oh, private sure. citizens spread lies like and i'm sure it went the other way i just saw more of the trump stuff because i think i was pretty vocal online about saying like yeah i, I liked governor DeSantis. um i think whoever you sort of supported you got the other teams losers right. online i don't i don't know <laughs> i mean and, and it really isn't reflective of where the republican party is i don't think there's a huge number of people who love trump and DeSantis. um mm -hmm. and you wouldn't know that by either one of their influencers, I think. Um, yeah, my my worry is. Yeah, I would have I would have voted for either one of those men, whoever clawed their way to the top. Frankly, so I I I just don't think anyone has as effectively dealt with the institutional left. No elected official has dealt as effectively with the institutional left as DeSantis in Florida. And what I'm really I really hope is that the disaster of his campaign. Um, and I do I agree with you that I think it was a disaster. Um, and whatever shortcomings the governor has uh, as a candidate do not attach to the program that has been so successful in Florida. Because there was a while I was really worried about it in the primary, um, especially, I mean, a lot of it from like Nikki Haley and elsewhere, where she was attacking Ron DeSantis for you know, not well, being welcoming enough to corporations like Disney and saying, oh, yeah, come on down to South Carolina with your jobs and like not understanding at all the parameters 
of the relationship, uh, the evolving relationship between the Republican Party and, and big business, not understanding at all the importance of some of these cultural battles like, um, you know, and, and Trump himself. I mean, he had those uh, what do you call them? The the truths, the whatever the, the Trump right. social platform, social where he is, you know, yeah. he's like saying, oh, like. BLM is fine, you know. Uh, it just that really well, would Trump be a very the moderate. Party. Huh? You know, Trump is actually very moderate. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he is very moderate on a lot of these cultural issues. I, it's always been a problem for me for him as a candidate. Uh, but all of that being said, the, it's hard. It's like the, essentially he, like I said, his best argument has always been. They're, they're, they hate you. They're coming after me because they hate you and they want to do the same thing to you. They want to destroy your life. They want to bring up spurious charges against you. They want to threaten to throw you in jail. They want to chase you out of public life. And that has always been a huge part of Trump's appeal. Yeah, I mean, and then they're they doing do it. it. Like, look at Rachel Maddow last night. Rachel Maddow last night is talking, you know, all about how Trump is lying on during his speech and how she's very proud of MSNBC for not showing Trump's victory speech in Iowa. And his speech was, you know, very moderate. It was perfectly fine. He thanked everybody. He thanked his opponents. He was very gracious. He thanked Vivek, who then, you know, dropped out like right then also. Um, he called for unity across the country. And he talked about the, the same issues that he's been running on to a certain extent for the past four years, right? He talked about these issues. Um, and Rachel Maddow says there's authoritarianism on the right. And so we're not even going to show Trump's speech. And it's like, OK, so you think the American people are too stupid to make up their own mind and to hear the man who is going to be, you know, the GOP nominee. You think that they're too stupid. You have Joy Reid going out there saying that Nikki Haley didn't win in Iowa because of racism. Really? Like this is what she said. She said there's a brown woman out there. She didn't win racism. So that's obviously very stupid. Um, and she also said, Joy Reid said that uh, white Christians in Iowa want minorities to bow down to them. So Trump says all that's this kind stuff. of rich because literally, I mean, the immediate image that comes to mind when I hear that comment is Nancy Pelosi kneeling in a Kenty cloth in 2020, <laughs> right? Like, very good point. Who's bowing down? Who's here? bowing down here? Yeah. Yeah. And who's bowing to who? Um, so I, I do think that one reason Trump's message is so resonant is because Democrats keep proving it to be true. They go like even they're still arresting people who were um, at the Capitol on January 6th. Matthew Graves came out just recently and said that his intention was now not just to arrest people who had been in the Capitol, but he was going to start going after people who were on the grounds. You have journalist Owen Schroyer, who was arrested and served, what was it, almost 60 days in jail, something like that, um, for having been on the grounds of the Capitol during January 6th and saying, you know, you know, death to tyrants, which now that's our American right. We get to say death to tyrants. That's part of what we get to do as Americans. And the reason, you know, part of the reason that he was imprisoned was that he had protested in Congress, I think a year or so before as well. He had like spoken out and they said, okay, you're not allowed to do that. Um, but there, you know, you have the Department of Justice continuing to go after people who were at the Capitol on January 6th. We see a lot of the surveillance footage 
the people in the surveillance footage get arrested. They're literally walking between the ropes. So um, then you have just the other day, you had people trying to rip down the gates outside the White House to make their point about, you know, the Middle East. And there were no arrests at all. So it's very um, like Trump or don't like Trump. The left keeps proving him right. And I think that's a left problem. Do you know what I mean? I think that they're not making their case at all. They're not making a case that they're not authoritarian. They're not making a case that they are actually interested in equality under the law. They're not making any of these cases. Instead, they are actively prosecuting Americans for being on the Capitol grounds. Uh, and let's not forget, this is the people's house, right? The government, as you said, it's there for us. It serves at our will. We are not here to serve the government. It's preposterous to think that we are. Um, yeah, so I think that's a big part of, of what's going on here. Well, I mean, I think the, the rage you're pointing to from this double standard is, I mean, look, all I can say is I think this is going to be probably the most consequential year of, pol of politics generally, and actually the election being only a small part of what I'm talking about, not like, I know we hear every time, oh, this is the most important election. I do think there's a good case for this to be being the most so important too. election, but, but it's even aside from the election itself. I mean, I, I don't, I anticipate probably low level at minimum, low level street violence leading up to oh, yeah. this election. Um, I, I, uh, I anticipate um, wildly unconstitutional interference from unelected branches of government in this election, right? It's, it's not going to be a normal American election. Um, and the left has done everything possible in order to drive, in my view, like just radically dangerous, even look at this, this recent move to strip Trump off the ballot, right? Yes. The Supreme Court probably, probably will strike down, but even so it, it shows such a, um, a lack of humility about the seriousness of what happens when millions and millions of people in the country decide that politics is no longer, the political process is no longer the vehicle for their disagreements, mm -hmm. right? It That's has no problem. respect yeah. at all. It's, it, it's like they, they simultaneously <laughs> scream all the time about white supremacy, about dictatorships. They, they, they play with fire as though 75 million Trump voters will disappear if they disappear. get rid of Trump. That's what they want. That seems to be what they want, right? Because then you look at it and you say, these are the things they are doing. These are the results of those actions. They must want these actions. You know, that's what you end up thinking. Like, um, there, you can even take it back to 2020. When was the last, when is the last time we saw a bunch of street violence, right? Um, in 2020. And right now it's not even riot season yet. And we already are having all this madness in New York. We're seeing it in D.C., the, you know, pro-Gaza, anti-Israel, pro-terrorist contingent is out there in full force. And it's January. It's cold out. What's going to happen when it's July and gorgeous? Do you know what I mean? And everyone can go out there and rage as much as they want in the nice, uh, in the nice sunshine. So, um, yeah, I think you're right, though. I think that these voters are feeling disenfranchised. Uh, and I think that they are right to feel disenfranchised. In fact, as a voter, I have been feeling disenfranchised and I am, you know, 
a liberal coastal elite who did all the things. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think that when you look at it and you see they don't want you to vote for this man, they want you to believe um, you know, that this man is a racist, white supremacist, and all of this stuff. And you look at it and you're like, well, I don't, that doesn't check out. It doesn't check out for the grandmas who got arrested at January 6th. Um, but it does, it does seem to check out for Joy Reid, who hates white people. She maybe is a racist. It's, um, it's very perplexing that this is the way that they're going. And you saw after Colorado, Maine pulled Trump off the ballot. And so that will probably be subject to the same Supreme Court decision. I think oral arguments are February 9th. I'm, I don't quote me on it, but I think that's true. You had California's, uh, California recommended that they look at pulling Trump off the ballot. They determined not to. The deadline was very close. I think it was December 28th. Um, I think I think a couple of red states are looking at, and I think they should. Illinois pull, is now at pulling Biden off. I, I think it will make the case better, um, not only because, and this is, this is sort of two different models of the universe. There's still the part of the right that thinks that if they do not fight fire with fire, they retain the moral high ground. And, um, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people upset if, if they go ahead and reciprocate and pull Biden off the ballot, let's say in Texas or Florida. Um, but I think for two reasons, one, I, I think the best route to stopping this is to, you know, in other words, for the left to actually feel equal and opposite consequence for each one of the, their steps across the Rubicon. Um, but but even aside from that, in the specifics of this case, I think it makes it easier for the Supreme Court to hand down a seven to two, eight to one kind of decision saying, no, 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 guys, we are not going to go about stripping candidates off the ballot if they're handing down a judgment that tells simultaneously Colorado, Maine, and Florida, like, no, none of you got none of these actions are constitutional. Like, I, I think it helps, actually. It helps the Supreme Court to be able to build. This is the one case in which I think moderation is useful. If they can build um, a case against this without ever focusing it on Trump um, at all and actually get some of the liberal justices on board with with the obvious case that this is dangerous and extra constitutional, um, I, I think that would be a really important um, sort of moderating force in America. And to that end, I think it's, I think it would be easier for them to do. It'll make it easier for some of the liberal justices to, uh, respond with this blanket, um, moderate opinion that says none of what these states are doing, including this red state, right. Who who, that did it to Biden is constitutional. Um, Mm -hmm. anyway, so I, I, I hope to see that we were talking about 2020 and race, um, and there was, of course, we had a uh, Martin Luther King Day uh, just over the last uh, long weekend here. I was actually um, in Canada for a wedding, and it was funny because I was asking the <laughs> the Amtrak lady was like, "Why are there so many people from the states here?" I said, "Oh, it's like a it's a holiday in the United States. It's a long weekend." And she's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> right. Um, she's like, "Is this a holiday? There seems like a lot of people from America here." <laughs> um, but in any case. Uh, so we had this holiday and then we had this explosion on Twitter um, and off Twitter when um, when Charlie Kirk, who's a mainstream sort of I, I would call him like a mainstream commentator. He's probably more in the line of air to like the talk radio kind of empire. I don't think of him as part of this 
even though he's, yeah, he has he's a old. daily radio show. Yeah. yeah. He has like a terrestrial radio show. So like mainstream in a lot of ways, I think quite boomer audience, um, very normie Fox kind of audience. I think, um, uh, that might be wrong. I mean, I'm sure Charlie has opinions about that himself, but, um, that's my well, impression. Closure, Charlie's a senior contributor with human events, um, which is part of the human events media group that post millennial is also a part of. Yeah. So I guess he's a, he's a tangential colleague of yours. Um, so he sparked a lot of, let's say, I don't know, like backlash slash discussion over essentially the question of whether the right ought to participate in what is the canonization in many ways of Martin Luther King um, in American life. He's, as far as I know, the only person who has a solo holiday in his name um, because President's Day is Washington and and uh, Lincoln smushed yeah. together. Um, so he's the only person with a federal holiday exclusively in his name. Um, he's also incredibly unifying in American polling life, right? So Martin Luther King, something like 80 to 90% consistently of Americans have a positive or very positive view of Martin Luther King. Um, and, but on the flip side, very few of Americans know anything about Martin Luther King other than the content of uh, character speech. And then maybe the fact that his tactics were nonviolent, right? Um, Montgomery bus boycott, probably people know about that because Rosa Parks, who is the subject of, you know, countless elementary school book reports. Yeah, I don't know what your experience was, but my like my experience was very already very anti-American, very lefty. But the the centrality of Martin Luther King and the American mythos, right, was very, very strong in the version of history that I was taught. That being said, to be fair to um, not just Charlie Kirk, but but uh, Jeremy Carl, who's been on this podcast, David Azarad, who's been on this podcast, who's written a very good essay uh, about Martin Luther King and about sort of the worship of Martin Luther King uh, in America. They're, they're bringing up the point that this is, you know, first of all, the real Martin Luther King was considerably more radical um, on issues of race, exactly, than the sort of soundbite uh, version of Martin Luther King that many Americans um, treasure, I guess that, that uh, he was in favor of sort of proto-affirmative action ideas, that he had something much closer to a CRT view of future race relations um, than perhaps people who only listened to one of his speeches might imagine that he had, um, and that it's not good for the right to participate in this kind of canonization. Uh, I don't know. So what do, you, what do you think about sort of, what what is the role of Martin Luther King in American life, and and how should we go about this discussion? Is it good to have this discussion? Is it bad? Should we not be having this discussion? Is it turning off people? Like, you know, what what's your like take on on all of the Martin Luther King, uh, sort of discussion going on right now? Yeah, so I have I've been following this a little bit. You know, as I said, Charlie uh, is with Human Events, um, and Jack Basobic has also been covering this on Human Events Daily, and he's a colleague of mine as well. Uh, so I've watched what they've been saying about it. I, of course, have my extremely liberal background and education to uh, bolster a bunch of my views. And I do think uh, that everything is on the table and open for discussion. So in, in the, you know, in that they are having this discussion, sure, 
have all the discussions, uh, bring up all the ideas, discuss all the things. I think that's perfectly good and reasonable. In terms of Martin Luther King, the man, um, I, I do think fully that it is possible to be a great man and not a good man. I don't think that those things necessarily have to go together. Uh, and, and that's a hard pill to swallow for sure. But when you look at the great men of history, a lot of them were terrible fathers, terrible husbands, um, you know, carousers, drunkards, whatever horrible thing you want, but they still achieved greatness at the thing that they were attempting to do. Um, and I think that it's worthwhile to make that distinction. Uh, certainly, we all know people who are great at one thing and terrible at other things that are very important. You know, you can even look at your parents and say, my parents were great at this and they were terrible at these other things, but I still respect them for, you know, whatever it is, putting a roof over my head, whatever else. So I, I think that, sure, open it all up for discussion. Um, that being said, I do think that it is important for Americans to have legends, to have legendary figures that we revere regardless of their goodness or badness um, in all of the other aspects of their lives. Uh, perhaps Martin Luther King was not, you know, always right about, um, you know, race relations. Perhaps he was more extreme, but that is not the figure that we have come to revere. The figure that we have come to revere is someone who is uh, decidedly not racist, who wants race to play, you know, whether this is accurate or not accurate, someone who wants race to play very little role in our public life. This is what we have created out of the man who existed as a real person, right? We did the same thing with Thomas Jefferson, uh, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, who by all accounts was a total prick, right? We know this. I love oh, he's my favorite actually. Like as a personality, I, I like his personality. Anyway, go. Me too. I love his garish outfits. I love the whole thing. I love how much John Adams hated him. And I love John Adams, right? But we create we create these men uh, from a combination of the reality in which they lived, from contemporaneous commentary, and from uh, and we create them also to be the legends that we need. Uh, the legend of Martin Luther King that we created as a society is kind of one that we need, right? We need that guy. Um, Rosa Parks, it was years before I realized that Rosa Parks, because they don't teach you this right in school. It was years before I realized that Rosa Parks not sitting at the back of the bus was totally planned. They had been planning that for a while. She wasn't just you know, I, I remember learning about it at elementary school and it was she didn't want to sit at the back of the bus. She was tired or something like that is how I remember it. And then later I'm like, oh, this was a planned civil action. Now I understand. Um, you know, you could argue that perhaps they should have created some sort of parallel economy instead of boycotting the bus. This is something that, you know, we've been talking about. Um, but they sort of did. They created a they basically created the first ride share program. Uh, in Montgomery when they boycotted the buses. Uh, but yeah, I, so it's, it's interesting. The Civil Rights Amendment has never come before the Supreme Court. A lot of the things that came out of the Civil Rights um, Amendment, I think, fueled things like Bostock, which is a terrible decision in the Supreme Court, I believe. Uh, now the Civil Rights Amendment has been used to divert protections for women to be protections for men 
because women and sex have been replaced with gender identity, essentially, in the interpretation. So there's a lot to discuss. But in terms of American myths and legends and our legendary historical figures, I think we need more of them, not less. And I almost think it doesn't necessarily matter um, if those men were the things we believe them to be or not, if that makes sense. I, Thomas Jefferson was a slaveholder. I'm not concerned with that aspect of his legacy. Uh, it's true, but I'm not particularly concerned with that aspect of his legacy. Um, you know, John Adams was a terrible vice president. He, the way that he, um, what was that one bill that he, he pushed through? And it basically was totally anti-free speech. I forget what it was called. Alien and Sedition Act. That's the one. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, yet in legend, in American legend, he was a great man. I think that we, as a culture, as a society, we are still a young nation. We need more things that bring us together regardless of their base veracity um, than, than the reverse. And we seem intent on destroying the foundations that did bring us together. And you can't have a house that stands with no foundation. It's almost like our culture is floating on air like that, like that painting. What's that painting? I forget the name of that painting. Who did it? I think it's in the Peggy Guggenheim Museum in Venice. You got me. <laughs> Whatever. You on this one. I have no idea what you're referring to. On air, like sitting on air. Who? Oh, why can I not remember? It has been too long since I have um, looked at good art. I think it must be it. Anyways, that's what we are. We're a society. We are a house built on air right now, and it's not going to hold forever. We need things that we agree upon as the foundational character of America and of the American ethos and, and, and who we are as a people that's missing. Yeah, that's I mean, missing. What you're, what you're referencing. I mean, like, so everybody who's in the American pantheon, let's say, and we've referenced a lot of them is there for some particular contribution and not for the totality of right. his life. Right. Right. Um, so, in your example, we, we, we don't um, venerate Thomas Jefferson because he was a slave owner. There were many slave owners right, that we don't venerate. Um, we venerate him for what he did do for this country, for writing the Declaration of Independence, right, for um, his presidency that he was much less proud of, um, for for the contributions that he's, he's made as the foundation of not only the physical um like start to, to our nation, but also to its soul, to its character. Right. Um, and so we, we are honoring him for that and not for any other thing he might've done in his life. I think similarly, I do think it's slightly more complicated with Martin Luther King because there is the question. So like Jeremy or David or, or Charlie probably would say, you know, the thing we're venerating him for is not true. Um, or is not as, as easily true as what we're teaching. Um, I think yeah, of that. Give it a hundred years. You know what I mean? Like, give it a hundred years. Uh, no, no, no. I think I think to say that it wasn't true about Martin Luther King. In other words, that we are right. venerating an aspect that was um, was a piece of his philosophy that was at odds with other views that he held. Sure, but it's is, a is a fair thing. Yeah, but, but 
I don't know. Like, so first of all, I, I like you. I, I think there's a value, especially in a, a multi-ethnic society to having essentially um, having a myth around Martin Luther King, um, even if it is a myth. Although I, I'm not wholly convinced by the, uh, by the historical case that it is, by the way. I, I mean, I, I, I think there is a real stripe of, of sort of legal equality Christianity that ran in King's thought, even as he did endorse more uh, radical solutions, and, and especially towards as he got older um, before he was assassinated. Uh, but in any case, I'm not even sure that the the historical criti critiques are wholly right in terms of summing up King's thought. But even if they were, you have to deal with the myth that 80 to 90 percent of Americans uh, believe about this man and not the man himself at some some level. Um, but I, I so I guess that the positive part of this, by the way, the, the the Civil Rights Act did come up before the Supreme Court multiple times. Um, oh, did it? Public public accommodations clause, a lot of litigation that, around. Yeah, maybe I was just thinking of the recent one. I don't think it was with the um, the Harvard thing, the uh, affirmative action. Wasn't that something different? That wasn't the Civil Rights. Yeah, well, it's it's yeah, no, it, it, in part, yes, it's well. Depends. So uh, a lot, lot of legal stuff here, but um, well, I better go do some research. But yeah. so, so there's an equal protection clause element to this as well. Like you can right. argue that equal well, protection the law is separate from the Civil Rights the, Act provisions. But equal um, opportunity commission wasn't that with the Civil Rights Act? The what? The equal opportunity commission wasn't that created with the Civil Rights Act? Yeah. Well, so there's there there are a bunch of government boards that deal with this. Um, different parts of the act. So the part that deals with race, uh, the part that deals with um, uh, sex is separate. The part that deals with um, it, laws of employment is a huge part. Anyway, um, in any case, I actually, this I do think is the point of having this Martin Luther King discussion that I think is valuable. I'm much it was a floating less- rock. It was a floating rock and it was by Magritte. <laughs> I have no idea. I've never seen that before in my life. Anyway, um, no, but- I, that is the part of this discussion that I do find valuable. Um, even though I think I disagree about Martin Luther King, the man and the, and the legend, um, I do think it's very important for the right to start being very uh, direct and open about race and about the Civil Rights Act. Because the, the part of Martin Luther King's legacy that is inextricable is the passage of the 64 Act. Now, there's, you know, there, there's the Christopher Caldwell thesis that that itself is the problem. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, again, much less convinced by that case uh, legally than I am by Gail Harriet's case, which I had her on this podcast. Uh, really recommend going back and listening to that episode to my listeners, by the way, not to self-reference. Um, but I think it's, it is just, it's a shame that she's not more widely interviewed. Um, Gail Harriet, she's a law professor at U, um, University of San Diego. I, she has... To my mind, she's she's served on the uh, Civil Rights Commission for many years. Uh, this is her her bread and butter, her expertise, uh, and she has, I think, the best case for how the reforms in the 1990s under the first President Bush uh, really accelerated the kind of legal regime that we now live under that does encourage discrimination against white men, that does encourage uh, sort of affirmative action and legs up for minorities, that does um, encourage a kind of sensitivity policing in the workplace. Um, I think she has 
written extensively, and I really just recommend either the podcast or go just read some of the law review articles that Gail Harriet has written um, on this subject. So I tend to think the locus of the problem legally is actually closer. It's it's in the 90s. Um, but yeah, but in I, any don't case, know, I don't know that much. As I told you before we started, yeah. I haven't dug into it that much. So No, but I, I think like this this <laughs> cultural discussion, so even though I, I sort of disagree with the the, the folks who are opening it um, to, to Martin Luther King, I think what I do think about is valuable about this entire episode is that if people on the right in the mainstream are being brave enough to discuss openly, like, okay, like, should we venerate Martin Luther King? Um, you know, it, what did he do that was good? What did he do that was bad? Right? Like, I, I think having that discussion emboldens Republicans to be more direct on the issue of race and maybe starts to chip away at the legend status that I really think is undeserved, which is of the Civil Rights Act. Um, because there are, especially post-90s, there are a lot of things that need to be reformed about the Civil Rights Act if we're ever going to deinstitutionalize what we now call wokeness. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of pleased to see the discussion break out, even at the same time as I disagree, I think, with Charlie. And I'm, I'm of two minds on this, and I could still be convinced, but with folks like Jeremy Carl, folks like... Um, my, my mentor, David Azarad, that's for him. He uh, likes to laugh about that. Um, and with um, Charlie Kirk sort of popularizing this view, um, to the extent that this makes it possible for Republicans ultimately uh, and the right more broadly to say, you know what, we do need to take a look at our racial laws in this country and how they are actually encouraging not meritocracy, not colorblindness, but are actually encouraging this kind of like racial uh, inquisition that a lot of people uh, are now objecting to much more and more openly, whether that's the affirmative action part of it or whether that's in, in the workplaces. Um, you know, there, there were enormous incentives put in place in the 1990s for workplaces to essentially become allergic to anything that anyone finds mildly offensive if it has a racial or sexual character. Um, and I think that's been a disaster uh, for-, oh, for sure. I mean, when I was in high school in the 90s, that was a, there was at my school, at my high school, there had been, the year before I had started, there had been um, pushback against the anti-whiteness, and this was a private school. And so this was already happening in private schools in the 90s uh, after, you know, the Peggy McIntosh invisible knapsack thing of 1989 and there was a dead white males males club or dead white male society or something like that and it was these it was upper class men um you know venerating books from dead white males and they were i think it was men i don't think i don't think we were using that term quite so liberally as we are now um the male female thing but there was pushback against this from the administration and there were, I remember there were threats as to what would happen to these boys if they had been discovered to do this. It was a, it was an issue then. And it, uh, it's interesting to me that it's only in the past few years that it's really become an issue on the right, because this has been running rampant through our educational and academic institutions since at least 1989. I mean, it's been pushed, it's been enforced since then. So why did it yeah. take so long for anybody to notice? I mean, I and don't know. All notice. the grad school teaching programs are full of academics who push this onto future teachers. And then the teachers come out, they go all across the country, they all go to the same schools, and now they're pushing this on our kids. 
maybe that's just when people started to notice it when their five-year-olds started coming home with anti-racism worksheets. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for sure, um, after the shutdowns of the schools, all of a sudden people had more direct access than ever to what their kids were learning because they were listening to it around the kitchen table, uh, in, during lockdown, um, as egregious as that was, it was a window into the curriculum that I think a lot of people did not have unless they were overly or very invested in the politics of it. Um, but, but yeah, there is this, this notion that this radical racial and sexual politics that we have sprung out of the ground three or four or five years ago. Um, and that if we just return to 2012, uh, politics that, um, somehow this is going to go away rather than acknowledging that the roots of this legally go back at least into the nineties. Um, in terms of culturally, it's a much more open question, but if you read the radicals of 1968, what they are saying about race, about sex, about gender is actually not that different than the radicals of 2024. Um, no. The only difference is how much power they have now. Right. I mean, they definitely have a lot more power. I don't know if you saw there was a there was a series Jack Posobiec did on Human Events Daily, and it was um, talking about leftist revolutions. I forget what it was called, but there was they did a segment. It was like during the no man's land between Christmas and New Year's. There was a segment, there was a there was an episode on the leftist revolution in America in the 1960s. And it was honestly the first time I thought of it as a leftist revolution. I had not, that had not occurred to me before. I thought it was, you know, just a cultural moment that gave us unfortunate fashion choices and some very bizarre views on um, relationships and did weird things to my parents. But I hadn't thought about it in terms of it being a revolution. Um, and it is interesting to see more people discuss it that way. When I was a kid, that era was revered, most likely. And the music of the era was revered. The ethos, the ideas of the era were revered. Primarily, probably, because the people who were in charge the, the uh, were the baby boomers. You know, people my parents' age, people who are now in their 70s, primarily, like early 70s, mid to late 70s, this kind of these people. Um, but they they pushed this on us as this great time of liberation. And so I wonder if there is a way, a moment, if we are in a moment where that is going to change, or if it's just going to stay in our textbooks as it is, along with the, the new stuff about the insurrection of January 6th. Yeah, I mean, the legacy of the 60s, um, I feel like is, is the most Maybe this is this is what I want to say. I think the critique of the the sexual revolution and of the '60s went re relatively mainstream in the last three years. I mean, you have Louise yeah. Perry's book, you have uh, Mary Harrington, Nina Nina Power over at Compact. Like you have the rise of the turfs on the left, right? Um, to some extent, Libby's home turf. Um, joke so to there. Speak. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, when I I went to uh, the UN Commission on the Status of Women in 2019 to do some reporting on that with um, who was there? I think Lila Rose was there. Uh, you know, she's very um, pro-life activist person. And there was also a woman who was there whose name I have been trying to remember ever since. And I should probably go check my notes. I think I wrote about this actually for the Federalist at the time. But she was telling me about the emergence of um, the National Organization for Women 
uh, and how abortion became part of the platform. And she told me something that was very surprising. This is a woman who had written for Cosmopolitan and had been tasked I I with writing. you're talking about. Yeah, really interesting lady. And she had written all about the sexual revolution and all this stuff. And she said that it was a total lie, that every aspect of it that Cosmo pushed, which I remember seeing as a kid, um, you know, I remember seeing this stuff in my house. She said that it was all lies and that in fact, it were it was um, some men in the 70s, I believe, who pushed abortion to be part of the now platform. And that's how it got in there, that it was these men who essentially pushed out women who were opposed to abortion. And now we basically have this like American genocide going on. I, I don't know uh, if I fully buy. I think her name is um, Browder, though, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I read her book. But it's interest, it was an interesting concept that I had not uh, there, thought about. There were, there were simply splits in the 70s over abortion. But like left, leaving aside abortion for a minute and the, the fight within now. By the way, IW grew out of that fight, I think, in, in part. Um, because there were some of our founders were women who had been part of now and and then uh, left after this sort of split in the 70s. Um, because, but, but leaving aside the specifics of abortion, I think that the critique of the sexual revolution is broader than that. And it has gone reasonably mainstream. And I'm wondering yeah. if, even though, again, I, I, I find certain aspects of it probably ill- uh, like, I, I'm not sure that this is, like, a fight about Martin Luther King that is worth taking on for the right. Um, I'm wondering if we're about to see something similar with the 60s notions of race. In other words, that there is some sort of mainstream reconsideration of our our uh, larger mythos about the 60s, about uh, its sexual politics, about its racial politics, right? And that doesn't mean, again, just like with the sexual revolution, that doesn't mean that you know every single thing that that grew out of that time is is bad or wrong or needs to be chucked in the bin, right? Um, there there are aspects of of the the um, legal encodement of the sexual revolution that I, even I think, as somebody who is very anti-feminist and very much against this ethos of the sexual revolution. Um, even I think is is uh, probably valuable to certain protections for pregnant certain protections for pregnant mothers. Mm -hmm. I think um, it, it was a valuable uh, uh, sort of legal outgrowth of of that um, of that sexual revolution. But that doesn't mean I, I just I I would welcome a more open discussion um, about the legacy of the '60s with regard to race in the same way that we are having a more open discussion about the legacy of the 60s with regard to sex, because I, I I do think that to some extent that legacy, especially the Civil Rights Act, um, is so encased in amber until recently in our politics and that, you know, you have all the Republicans every time. Every, Martin Luther King would have been a Republican, right? <laughs> Everybody right. has to fight over the legacy of, of MLK or of, of the Civil Rights Act of the 60s. Um, that that reopening that discussion and saying, okay, well, do we want to keep everything from this? You know, in what ways does this make sense today? In what ways does it not? What negative consequences have grown out of this? What positive consequences have grown out of this? Like just just a more and in that sense, it's a very moderate position that I have. I just would like to re-examine generally the legacy of the 60s that is so, so prominent um in American life that as you say, you don't even consider it a revolution. 
But it was, I mean, legally, if you look at the 1960s and 70s and then before that, a lot of things we take for granted in the law are the result of activist courts in the 60s and 70s. Again, not just Roe v. Wade, not just about abortion, for example, about the First Amendment and the fact that it extends to obscenity and pornography. Um, Was that the Warren? That was the Warren court? I think so. Um, it's it's the the last obscenity cases that were successful in allowing the states to ban obscenity um, ended in the in the 60s and 70s. Uh, there was a, a war throughout the 50s about it. Right. You have the, the famous war between the stand up comedians, for example, and wanting to say the F word on stage. And uh, but, but that entire battle, like you have a pre 60s court that says, no, this the states have this power. This is none of our business. This is the First Amendment doesn't extend to obscenity. After the 60s and 70s, it becomes the unquestioned doctrine, even of conservatives, because it's so culturally um, sort of locked in, right, is that, oh, no, you, you can't restrict obscene images or speech, right? Pornography is, is protected under the, the First Amendment. Now, maybe that's the right conclusion. Um, but but the, the point I'm making is only that the, the legacy of the 60s is enormous, culturally, mm-hmm. legally, across a whole bunch of different um, – sort of areas of life from race to sex to freedom of, of speech and religion. There's a whole, you know, section of how we changed the definitions of religion under the first, right. the first amendment during the sixties. Right. So um, dealing with conscientious objectors to the Vietnam war um, there's, there is this enormous legacy. And I do think not in every instance, but in essence, we really are living in this world created the, the like, um, logical conclusion of the world created in the 60s. And it, it, that's something that I feel like should be more prominent on the right and isn't sometimes either on the one hand because of cowardice and not being willing to, say, criticize Martin Luther King or the Civil Rights Act, but on the other hand, because we have this post-liberal movement that wants to find fault with it, the, like, the foundations of America and ultimately blames atomization on the Enlightenment on, uh, you know, Enlightenment liberalism going back to the founding. And some of those critiques are interesting and maybe have some aspects of truth to them. But to me, looking at America in 1950 and then America in 2024, the proximate cause of why we are such a different country is the 60s. Almost everything, the beginning of every, every like sort of radical idea that the right is grappling with now in the mainstream in 2024 began in the sixties in a very direct way. And so, so like, it's odd to me. You could even say that's the beginning of the, the massive divorce upheaval that has affect, affected so many people um, in my generation and, you know, on down, like when I, the, the whole no fault divorce, all of that stuff. wasn't a lot of that in the sixties as well. Sixties and seventies. So yeah. yeah. So you have like my grandparents on both sides got divorced in the seventies my parents got divorced. They got remarried and got divorced. You know, like I got married, I got divorced. It's like, where does this, you know, you destroy the stability of family, you destroy the stability of marriage. And it's like, we're just all out here with no, with no idea of like how to find stability or how to put down roots or even just, you know, how to wash our own dishes or anything, you know, it creates this creates this disaster. I think a lot of that is the pushback from just looking at it from my own parents who pushed back against their parents very hard. Of course, their parents were like that greatest generation. They went through the depression. They 
fought in World War II. Um, they came out of that. They had the GI Bill. You know, my grandparents, both my grandfathers, I believe, were beneficiaries of the GI Bill and did different things with it. Um, my grandfather finished college, you know, with that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at it, the way that they pushed back against their parents, even in terms of religion, in terms of a stable home life, in terms of any kind of moral structure was severe enough that when they took their first round with kids, which was the, you know, the Gen Xers, they barely even raised their kids at all. It's not that they got nannies for them like they did with their second batch of kids. They just let them all go out there and be confused. Uh, you know, that's that's definitely, I think, a cultural legacy of the 60s that people don't recognize because it's just so pervasive now. Now we have, nobody gets married. They just have kids and let their kids run around and do not, you know, don't even worry about getting them educated or anything. Yeah, we live in the shadow of the 60s. Um, that, that's about as, as, as about as much time as we have today. But Libby Evans of the Post Millennial, thank you for, for uh, coming on High Noon, discussing everything from the horse race to um, to what's wrong with the 1960s. And uh, so th thanks very much. We'll, we'll have you back and, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about art because uh, Libby has some fantastic uh like she she already uh, told me that I don't know. Apparently, I don't know this this painting of the the uh, the yeah, house and the sky on the rock. But but uh, it's not the house. I, I got confused. There's there is a house. The house is in shadow. That's a totally different painting. And then there's this floating rock. So, yeah. Sorry, it's Magritte. It's Rene Magritte. If anyone wants to go check it out, really great wow. blues in there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You so really the only thing I actually care about. So. <laughs> Yeah, but that's that's what makes it interesting. That's yeah. what makes that's what makes you you interesting. I think uh, in the in the conservatives, not as a person, not as a human being. I'm saying like uh, in the conservative in, in the conservative space, space there there isn't a, you know I, my listeners have listened to me say too many things about this as of recently, so I'm not going to bore them with it. But um, it, it is such a deficit on the right, not only in terms of, of people who are able to produce and anything um, in terms of art, but but also understanding, like having um, the ability to to grapple with um, different sort of artistic expression. I, I really, uh, I had Andrew Clavin on here, and one of the things he said um, really stuck with me, which is that there, there is this real deep need on the right to make the only mode of artistic expression role modeling. Um, yeah, it's weird. And then on the left, the only mode of artistic expression is activism, which yeah. leads me to believe yeah. that there is room for actual creation. There's room for actual art. I actually have this, uh, I, I learned a lot of artistic technique, strangely enough, in middle school. That's where I learned the most artistic technique in um, Hanover Junior High in Massachusetts. And I'm planning to embark on some armature projects with my child and teach him how to do the art that I learned in eighth grade because there's no, there's no art. Like no, nobody's even teaching art. They'll be like, here's some markers, color this in. And that's it. That's it. There's no, let's open up creation. Look for what's beautiful. Make it. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> we'll, we'll have Libby back to talk more about that uh, because I, I really want to hear more about it from you, but we have done an hour, so I must respect your time and I'd let you go. Um, <laughs> 
once again, Libby Emmons uh, with the Post Millennial. You can read her work over there as well as all the work that she that goes through her since she is uh, the, the queen over other people's work uh, at the Post Millennial. So thanks again, Libby, for coming on. Thanks. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.